Good morning. As we get started in class this morning, a couple of things. One, I'm going to ask the class for a little bit of help because I said something a few weeks back that I heard some time ago somewhere uh, attributed to Ellen White, but I couldn't find the reference for it. So I'm going to ask if you, if you guys are online class can hunt the reference up. That'd be great. But it had to do something along the lines that she prayed. Uh, she prayed an early part of her ministry for healing for someone, and they were healed. And then afterwards, they went into a uh, you know wild. Uh, non-Christ-like life, and, and she asked the Lord, why did you heal him? And, and the answer was something along the lines, because you didn't really give me an option. It was either validate you as my, as my you know, spokesperson or not. And from that point on, she said she always prayed in his will, you know, healing according to your will. This is something I heard a long time ago, but I couldn't find an exact reference for it. So you guys can hunt one up. I'd, I'd appreciate it. I, I didn't have time to hunt one up, but it might not be there. So let's check it out and see. And then uh, we have a, a thanks to give today. John Ritland is back. As you know, he's been gone for some time. Uh, he had uh, a cancer, and he had uh, extensive surgery, and as far as they can tell, he's cured now. And so we are thankful for that, and if you want to know any more details, John would be glad to talk with you guys after your class. Let's begin with prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you so much that you are a God of love and God of truth, a God who wants to heal and restore us ultimately back to eternal life with you. We ask that you will join us here this morning with your spirit and your angels, that our minds will be enlightened. We will know your presence. We want to give you thanks for John and his healing, and we pray that you will use him in a mighty way to spread this truth about you. We pray in your holy name. Amen. We are doing lesson number 10 in the quarterly uh, Biblical Missionaries, and the title this week is Philip as Missionary. And the memory text is out of Acts 1.8, and it says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. First question, what power? You will receive power. When you hear the word power, what comes to mind? Empowerment. Empowerment, she says. What kind of power? The power of God? Will they receive the power of God? Understood, yes. What, what, what kind of power is that? And, and, and uh, look specifically, when they receive power... What happened? What, what, what functionally was the outcome of that power? Heart transformation. What did they do with it? Oh, I love this. So the first thing that the power did for them is that they died to self and they loved God and others. So it was a power of transforming character. That was part of the power. Yeah, they lived selflessly after that. They gave, they sacrificed self. Yes, in the back corner. Uh, part of the power was self-confidence. These guys are fishermen and, and farmers and you know, there's only a few of them were professionals. Now they had the self-confidence to be in front of thousands of people and speak the truth. Now, now this is this is well said. Many people struggle with self-confidence. And let's let's unpack this. I deal with this in my office all the time. Self, this insecurity to get up and speak, comes from a focus on who? Self. Self. We're concerned what others will think about us. But and I do I do this with patients all the time. I said if you were if you were asked to go in and, and whatever their specialty is, whatever they do for a living, I will use that as, as and you're gonna give a lecture to first graders, there are only six year olds in you in the room, and you're gonna talk a little about what you do for a living. Are you gonna be nervous about that? No. Why not? Because well it's not just they won't judge you, it's that the experience is that you really go in there that you actually have something that they don't yet know that you can impart to them. There's a confidence factor in that area too. It's not just a confidence in their area of expertise, because if you ask them to get up and talk about their area of expertise to a bunch of adults, they will be very nervous. And yeah. So it's not just that they're confident in their area of expertise. That's not it. It's that they... What they that your audience knows and what you know? 
It has to do where the focus is. When they're talking to kids, they're actually thinking about what can I give to you? What can I impart to you? It's a giving experience, a sharing experience, an other-centered experience. I actually want to invest something in you. But when they stand up in front of adults, they're thinking, what are they thinking about me? Am I saying it right? Did I, did I hem and haw? Did I make some mistake? They're actually looking at themselves and how they'll be judged by the audience. It's a, and oftentimes, will they like me? Will they appreciate me? Will they want me back? And so the point being is this self-confidence that you spoke of, what happened? Why were they confident? Not simply because they now had um, some supernatural um, courage that came along, but because they died to self. They were not interested anymore in what others would think of them. They actually had concern for their audience, and they actually had a message they believed the audience needed to hear. Mm-hmm. Now you can see this as an adult as well. If... And these same shy people who might have a hard time getting up in front of a group, if they were in another room and a fire broke out in the other room, would they be afraid to run into this room and let everybody know there's a fire over there? So far, none of my patients would be afraid to do that. They have something important to impart that that you need to know. And the focus is on helping that other group. When we focus on helping others, that's an act of love, and love casts out fear. fear. And so that self-confidence, absolutely. But I see it as a byproduct of the fact that what was said earlier that the power was the power to die to self and to love others. Can you see the connection now? We, we could use this to recruit additional substitute teachers for this class. This yes. is the experience. Yes, so those of you who would be nervous to teach, think about that. You can get up here and you have something to share with the people. You're focused on helping them and, it's not, and you're not nervous at all, right? It's the truth. It is true. Yeah, Russell. When you unpack this text, you need to know what the source of the power is in order to delineate what the power defines. If, if the text says that you will be given the power of the United States military or it's the power of Sequoia nuclear plant, it's, it's a different type of a power. You would be given the power of the Roman government, that's a different power. And so it, given the power of the Holy Spirit, what is the Holy Spirit? It's the, the power of truth presented in a loving manner, and you leave people free to make their own choices. And that's what, yeah, exactly right. This is the power we're looking at. So, if you notice what they did, they, with that power, died to self, and then stepped out to begin sharing a message that people needed to hear, uh, fearlessly. Uh, they, they also devoted their resources, their energy, to helping others, spreading the remedy. Um, everyone spoke, when they spoke, everyone heard them in their own language. So they had the power of a universal translator. That, that's supernatural power. But the power was designed to do what? Put up barriers or break down barriers? To divide or to unite? Yeah, notice that power. Yes. What I'm hearing here is that passion will cast out fear. If you're passionate about something, whenever you really feel passionate, the fear is going to drop away. Maybe? If it's other-centered passion. Yes. (laughs) Okay. If it's self-centered passion, then no. People are very passionate about what people will think about them, and they have lots of anxiety and fear about it. Mm Mm-hmm. So it's not just the passion itself. No, it's I'm whether thinking it's, of like for a cause. An other-centered, yes, an other-centered passion, but it's really the, it's the love, not the passion, that's really driving it out. But when you're passionate, yeah. then, then you can have a more intensity mm-hmm. of, that, that, of that mission, which will heighten the selflessness of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, notice what else they did with the power. They cast out demons. They healed the sick. They walked out of locked prisons. They were immune to snake bites. Protected from storms. They had warnings of potential threats so they could avoid those threats. 
They were given wisdom. They were actually given visions, spiritual insight. They prophesied, yes. What kind of power do these events represent? Russell said, truth, love, freedom. The power of a transformed life operating with a greater understanding of how reality works in harmony with God's design. Philip was transported from one place to another place instantly. And, And what do we hear when you think about the streams of fire at Pentecost? Now, the old English has had you know, forked cloven tongues of fire. I think cloven, you know, it's split or, or two streams of fire. You ever thought why there were two streams of fire instead of one? Because it's the fire of truth and the fire of love. It's the fire of truth and love. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth and love. Can you have people speak truth but no love in their heart? And what happens when people speak truth with no love in their heart? He gets deceived. Or it's actually cruel. You can hurt people with truth. Have you seen people that have to be truth speakers? I must speak the truth. But they do it with no love. And and they say it in such a way that they hurt and crush people. Or can you have real love for, for people, but you have no truth? So you love them, but you have nothing to share with them that can empower them to help transform their life. The spirit is the spirit of truth and love. And it's always combined together that we want to present the truth in love under an umbrella of freedom. So what we did we... So, and, and I just want to emphasize again, that the power was used to break down barriers that divided. Prejudicial barriers, communication barriers, social barriers, ritualistic barriers... Notice in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit is working in their lives to break down barrier after barrier after barrier to bring unity is what, what it's doing. What, what we did not see evidenced by this power. Do we see any in the New Testament coercion, intimidation, pressure, control, undermining of freedom? Do we see violence, physical weapons, taking up arms, rioting, protesting, Do we see a fight for individual rights? We must fight for the right of the slave. Do we see this going on? Do we see deceit and manipulation going on? Politics or other attempts to change state government. Any of this type of wielding of power going on? We don't see it. They didn't get power for that. That's not God's methods. It's not his mode. That's not how he operates. Some might be thinking, though, I know somebody out there is going, okay, hold on, but what about Ananias and Sapphira? What do you think about Ananias and Sapphira? Was God acting to punish? Was God coercing? Was God telling the church, you better give your money and tithe and offering to the church or you better watch out? (laughs) Collections were quite good each month after that. (laughs) What do you think? Any comments on Ananias and Sapphira? Assuming that God put them to death. Is, is, how, is, how have you heard it taught to you coming up? That God put them to death. Perhaps when just confronted with truth. Or is God punishing? Or are these two people reaping in their own selves what happens when the unhealed are faced with intense exposure to love and truth? Was their experience the shock 
of being exposed and confronted by the truth, what they knew and therefore understand to be true. So what happens when people believe something strongly and are confronted with their beliefs in a sudden and shocking way? What happens to that person? Well, 1587, Sarastasusa was the first Westerner to document among the Tupinambas Indians that the sudden death of those who were condemned and given a death sentence by their medicine man. In 1875, Varn Hagen documented among the Brazilian Indian tribes that the chiefs and shamans could cause death by fear. In 1906, Leonard, Leonard documented in Africa amongst the Lower Niger people, quote, I have seen more than one hardened old soldier lying steadily, excuse me, dying steadily and by inches because he believed himself bewitched. No nourishment or medicines that were given to him had the slightest effect either to check the mischief or to improve his condition in any way. And nothing was able to divert him from the fate which he considered inevitable. In the same way, under my under very similar conditions, I have seen crewmen, K-R-U, crewmen, and others die in spite of every effort that was made to save them simply because they had made up their minds, not as we thought at the time, to die, but that being in, in the clutch of malignant demons, they were bound to die. 1682, Marolik in the Congo uh, tells this story. A young Negro on his journey uh, lodged at the friend's home for the night. The friend had prepared for, for their breakfast a wild hen, a food strictly banned by a rule which must be inviolably observed by the immature. The young fellow demanded whether it, it was indeed a wild hen. And when the host answered no, he ate of it heartily and proceeded on his way. A few years later, when the two men met again, the old friend asked the younger man if he would eat a wild hen. He answered that he had been solemnly charged by a wizard not to eat that food. Thereupon the host began to laugh and asked him why he refused it now after having eaten it at his table before. On hearing this news, the Negro immediately began to tremble so greatly that uh, was he possessed by fear, and in less than 24 hours he was dead. And I've got the references in here in the medical journals for all of these. So, uh, what view of God do you think Ananias and Sapphira held. Wasn't the same view at the time, the dictator and the one who um, cruelly dictates and causes things? Do you, do you guys, yes, I think that's right. Do you guys find it credible or incredible, uncredible, these stories of people dying at the hands of a curse from a witch doctor? That these things happen or they don't happen? Yeah, yeah, they do. They're well documented. They do. Sudden cardiac arrest based on an extreme fright. You see it in animal kingdom as well. It's called capture myopathy. Mm-hmm. When, when uh, the volunteers are attempting to save an animal and they're, they're, you know, they're trying to, to grab a thing and extricate it from a trap or something, the animal will perceive them as a predator and die. Just cardiac arrest. Done. Yep, the fear is so intense. But was this a possible outcome for Ananias and Sapphira? Well, I'm going to read Acts 5, 1 through 11 from the remedy. It says, A man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira agreed to sell a piece of property and give the entire amount to the Lord's cause. When the Lord blessed it and the property sold for more than expected, Ananias, with the full consent of his wife, kept back an unex- the unexpected extra and turned in only what the property was thought to be worth. As he laid the offering at Peter's feet, Peter said, Ananias, Why did you choose to side with Satan and fill your heart with greed? You lied to the Holy Spirit and chose to keep some of the money you received for the land. 
Wasn't the land yours before you sold it? You didn't have to promise to give all the money from the sale. Were you not free to promise only a portion? Why would you promise at all and then hold hold a portion back? You haven't lied to finite humans. You have lied to God. When Ananias was confronted with the truth, it shocked him, and he fell down and died. All who heard what happened were overcome with fear. The young men came right in, wrapped up the body, carried it out, and buried it. Three hours later, Sapphira, Ananias' wife, came in, but she didn't know what had happened to her husband. Peter asked her, Is this the entire price you and Ananias received for the sale of the land? Yes, that's the full price, she answered. Peter confronted her with the truth. What were you and your husband thinking, lying to God? A few hours ago, your husband, when confronted with the truth of what you have done, died. The men who buried him are coming through the door, and they will carry you out to bury you also. When she heard this, it shocked her. She fell down and died. Then the young man came in, and finding she was dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. The entire congregation and all who heard about it were gripped with fear. Well, God doesn't send fear. So I don't think God would have allowed that just to make him fear. So what do you think happened here? Was God acting using divine power from heaven to strike them down? Or were they confronted with truth that was shocking to them? And they died. It was overwhelming for them. It depends on the way you look at it. For example, was Peter giving the curse or just saying what was going to happen? Yes, was he, was he cursing he describing them? the natural outcome or was he conveying a curse? This is out of Acts of the Apostles, page 72. See what you think of this. Afterward, Ananias and Sapphira grieved the Holy Spirit by yielding to feelings of covetousness. They began to regret their promise and soon lost the sweet influence of the blessing that had warmed their hearts with a desire to do large things in behalf of the cause of Christ. They thought that they had been too hasty, that they ought to reconsider their decision. They talked the matter over and decided not to fulfill their pledge. They saw, however, that those who parted with their, the, their possessions to supply the needs of the their poorer brethren, were held in high esteem among the believers and ashamed to have their brethren know that their selfish souls grudged that which they had solemnly dedicated to God, they deliberately decided to sell their property and pretend to give all the proceeds into the general fund, but really to keep a large share for themselves. Thus, they would secure their living from the common store and at the same time gain the high esteem of their brethren. Think, wait, 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 I'm not done yet. Not done. I'm just going to pause. I'm going to another paragraph to read. Just think what she's describing. These people want to be thought good of by their church members. Okay, so they're putting on a pretense of righteousness while they're actually greedy and selfish. We don't struggle with anything like that in the church today, do we? Okay, keep me on with the next paragraph. But God hates hypocrisy and falsehood. Pause. Why does God hate hypocrisy and falsehood? Thank you. What happens in the character of those people who practice hypocrisy and falsehood? And what happens to the church when people who are hypocritical and false end up in leadership, highly esteemed by people? What does their influence do to the body of Christ? It's poison. Lucifer in heaven came out under the guise of an angel of light. This is extremely destructive. That's why God hates it. Not because he hates the person, but he hates what happens to them. The same way a parent hates their child smoking or doing drugs. They don't hate the child. They hate what's damaging the child. It's the hypocrisy and the falsehood. It's destructive. Keep on with the quote. Ananias and Sapphira practiced fraud in their dealings with God. They lied to the Holy Spirit, and their sin was visited with swift and terrible judgment. 
When Ananias came with his offering, Peter said, and it just, she then quotes the Acts, what Peter said. We read it earlier. So what do you understand this statement to mean? They were visited with swift and terrible judgment. See, the biases we have, the lenses we have, so unconsciously over our thinking. Does it say, did, she, did this author use the word, they were visited with swift and terrible punishment? Did she say that? No. They were visited with swift and terrible judgment. Did Peter confront them and judge them for what they did? He, he accurately diagnosed them. Yes, that's right. He accurately diagnosed and or judged what had happened and exposed them. This was an accurate, accurate judgment. It was swift and it was a horrible judgment because their characters were horrible or a terrible judgment. But it wasn't an infliction. There wasn't a punishment. They were confronted immediately in real time with their own selfish, greedy hearts. Terrible judgment, accurate judgment. They were judged, diagnosed, if you will. Yes. Didn't they also judge themselves? Yes, of course. That, and that's the point. When they were confronted with the truth, their denial, their distortion, their hypocrisy was exposed. They came under their own self-condemnation, as Judas did. When Judas was confronted, and he went out and hung himself. But it's such an insight into what's going to happen. Yeah at the second coming, and it's such an insight into their view of the God that they were worshiping. It's just like the wicked at the end that are praying for the rocks and trees. They would rather die, they would rather be killed than have happen what they think their God is going to do with them versus Peter, who was also under the same condemnation, self-condemnation after he denied Christ, but he took a whole different path because of the, the God he knew. Well said, well said. How many of you, though, Still, when you hear those, those, that phrase, visited with swift and terrible judgment, immediately translate that into punishment. But that's not what it says, is it? It doesn't say God visited them with swift No, it just says they were visited with swift and terrible judgment. They were judged. They were diagnosed. Accurate, you are sick of heart and mind. You have lied. You've lied against God and the Spirit. Yes, comment. Um, this, I, I don't know if it's one of the same thing you read, but it's right before you started reading. And uh, there's some other words in there that I'm just struggling with, but it starts like this. It will be profitable for all thoughtful to consider the nature of the grievous offense for which the guilty ones were made an example. This one marked evidence of God's retributive justice is fearful and should lead all to fear and tremble to repent, to, uh, to repeat sins which brought such punishment. Selfish was the great sin, which, was warped, which had warped the characters of the guilty couple. And that's testimonies for the church, volume 4, 462. Okay, what's your question? So there's some other verbs or words in there that I guess would struggle with. And so the challenge when we read words like this, instead of me just giving the answer today, the challenge is, do you read widely? Do you harmonize those phrases? Do you seek out the, the application in other contexts to really understand from that author what those words mean? And if you do... I believe it's in great controversy. Uh, there's, it's one of two places where you'll find this really exposed and explained. Either great controversy in the section where it talks about would God tie those to his side who knew nothing of love, nothing of kindness? Would he force them to be in, in heaven, the atmosphere be tortured to their souls? It's either that quote or the quote in Desire of Ages 762. Um, one of those two, she actually breaks down and expounds this idea of retributive justice. And the retributive justice is not an infliction. It is the experiencing the consequence 
of unremedied sin in your life and the torture that happens to the soul when it is exposed to reality and denial and distortion can't hide the self from themselves anymore. Yes? Is it possible that since the, this was when the Christian church was in its infancy and at a very critical time at the birth of the Christian church and could God have used extraordinary measures at this time in order to keep the church pure? Well, you know, if you look at what was else happening in the New Testament church, there were other practices happening as well. Man sleeping with his father's wife in Corinthians. No, I don't, I don't see God acting in those ways to discipline and or punish sin going on, and I just don't see it. And one of the authors of Servant God brought that point out. That's where I, I heard that, I, I think, was that this was the very, you know, the birth of the Christian church, and he had to be sure that, you know, the character of the people was pure at this time. If not, it could have destroyed the, the Christian church. Well, I think we find that... that if you read Paul's writings to the churches, there was a lot of people who came into the church who were struggling with some of their old pagan concepts and their old pagan attitudes and things that he was constantly having to redirect them on. And he says to the Galatians, who's bewitched you? Uh, have you exchanged the truth? If any, even if an angel from heaven comes with another gospel, they'll, they'll be eternally condemned. So I, I think this process was a battle that was ongoing because Satan was working very, very quickly to plant in his agents amongst the wheat, the tares being planted in amongst the wheat. And, uh, and you know, Christ himself said that's how it comes up. So I think from the very foundation, Paul had to confront Peter to his face at times because Peter was, was wrong on some things. So um, I, I just don't see God's methods. If we understand God's methods and coercive um Coercion is found only under Satan's government. It just, it just is counter, counter to the... You cannot get love from people by coercing and threatening. It just counters. It's a violation of liberty. So I can't see God acting here to coerce the people and then expect them to love him. It actually goes right down the wrong trail. Yes. Wait, back here. You had your hand. It says uh, receiving reward or punishment. And when you think about, you know, the wages of sin is death. It's the thing we earn. Retribution at the end of time or right now uh, is, is, is still in the context you're saying, you know, something that we earn in terms of not God punishment, but judgment on myself. Yes, and, and what did they earn? They earned their characters. They developed their characters. Um, they were overcome with guilt and shame. She asks, how do you apply the Old Testament stories to that? There's a completely different setting and different circumstance going on in the Old Testament. And the Old Testament circumstance was Satan was trying to obstruct the path of salvation and prevent Jesus from ever coming to earth. In Genesis 3, God says the, the seed of the woman is going to crush the serpent's head and he's going to bruise his heel. Satan knows that the seed of the woman is going to come to save this race and to destroy Satan and his power. So Satan gets busy to try to obstruct and stop that from ever happening, to close the avenue. Now, how could, that, how could that work? Will God force a woman against her will to be the mother of Jesus? Will God have a woman with character like Jezebel be the mother of Jesus? So if Satan can get every human heart to harden themselves permanently against God, the avenue through which Jesus can come is shut down. It's closed. Satan, Satan, Satan is permanently cut off planet Earth from God, if that happens. According to Genesis 6, there was a time in Earth history when there was only one righteous man left on the whole Earth. Only one. Every other heart on Earth had been closed, if we believe that to be true. How long did God wait before he acted? Until there was only one righteous man left on the earth. Sodom and Gomorrah and the five cities on the plain. Look at Israel without Sodom and Gomorrah and without those five cities. The hedonistic and 
cult practices around them still almost worked enough to prevent, to shut down that avenue. Because God had, God himself had chosen, it's not going to be the whole world now through which the Messiah will come. It's this one family in this world through which the Messiah will come. So Satan can now focus his energy not on all the peoples of the world, but this one family. If he can just shut down this one family and destroy this one family, he shuts down the avenue. And even without Sodom and Gomorrah and the five cities, they almost didn't make it through till Christ came. I think God excised the legion in these circumstances for the purposes of keeping open the avenue for the Messiah. Again, these are not punishments for sin. And all those people will come up in the resurrection of either the righteous or the unrighteous to finish out their lives according to the dictates of their own conscience. As we talk about in our God in Your Church DVD set, we go through the details of this with multiple quotes. But that once Christ came, however, and completed his mission, his mission, Hebrews 2.14, that by his death he might destroy him, holds the power of death, that is the devil. Uh, 1 Timothy um, 1, 9 and 10. Or is it 2 Timothy 1, 9 and 10? Anyway, by his death he might destroy death and bring life and immortality to light. In 1 John 3.8, that by his death he might destroy the devil's work. And so he came to expose Satan and to destroy his lies, which are his power, by the truth, setting us free. He came to restore the image of God in man, to destroy the devil's work, which he's been working to destroy the image of God in man and put Satan's image where it is, and to destroy the infection of sin, which brings death, and cleanse this species, bring it back to unity with God. Once he completed his mission, then God didn't need to act in those ways anymore. And we see post-cross, after the cross, um, the world is not a much more righteous place as it was. We still have Nero. We still have Hitler. We still have Saddam, uh, Saddam Hussein, Ad Idi Amin, um, and all these other despots through history. And terrible, terrible. Look at the Dark Ages. Terrible things happen. But we don't see God acting in the post-Christ period as he did before. Why? Because it's not necessary anymore. So, when we look at what's going on with Ananias and Sapphira... Do we believe with this idea that they died because of overwhelming guilt when they were confronted with the truth? Do we believe that Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God? Do we believe that? That's uh, 2 Corinthians 5.21. Do we believe that? Well, then what did he experience when unremedied... Uh, did, did he experience what unremedied sin does to a sinner? Did he go through that experience? What unremedied sin does to a sinner? Did he go through that experience? And what did he experience? Separation. Separation from his father. That's what sin does. Did he experience the unity with his father breaking up? Where did he experience it? Yes, he did experience it on the cross, but did he experience it somewhere else first? In Gethsemane first, he experienced it. This was when he was, it was all being laid upon him. And what would have happened to Christ in Gethsemane if an angel had not come to give him physical strength? He would have died from what? A broken heart. It was overwhelming mental anguish and stress. Are you telling me that, 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 we, that Ananias and Sapphira couldn't have died from that same thing when they were confronted with their own unhealed condition in light of truth? So here's a commentary regarding the final judgments of God at the end of the thousand years when the final judgments of God come. This is out of Manuscript Releases, volume 14, page 13. I was shown that the judgments of God would not come directly out from the Lord upon them, but in this way. They placed themselves beyond his protection. He warns, corrects, reproves, and points out the only path of safety. Then if those who have been the objects of his special care will follow their own course, independent of the Spirit of God, after repeated warnings, if they choose their own way, 
then he does not commission his angels to prevent Satan's decided attack upon them. It is Satan's power that is at work at sea and on land, bringing calamities and distress and sweeping off multitudes to make sure of his prey. And storm and tempest, both by sea and land, will be, for Satan has come down with great wrath. He is at work. He knows his time is short, and he is not restrained. We shall see more terrible manifestations of his great power than we've ever dreamed of. What do we see here is the judgments of God. God diagnoses. They're the diagnosis of God. And, and how does it work? I diagnose that this heart is permanently closed and no amount of light and no amount of truth will have any impact on them anymore. And this heart is permanently closed. And this heart is permanently closed. And this heart. And where's the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit on earth? The hearts and minds of men. And as hearts across the earth permanently closed where no amount of truth and no amount of light can impact them anymore, no amount of love or truth can impact them, the Holy Spirit is slowly being withdrawn from the earth, not because God wants to withdraw his presence, but because we are closing the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. And as the Holy Spirit is withdrawn from the earth, Satan gets more and more freedom to act. And more and more terrible things begin to happen. In accordance with the law of liberty, the design law. And so his judgments, the accurate diagnosis of each and every heart and every situation, his actions are always in harmony with his nature, character, and law of love, always designed to heal, restore, but under the principles of liberty, because love only exists in an atmosphere of liberty. Thus, those who choose to live independently from God will eventually be set free to experience what they have chosen. Now this is out of uh, Testimonies of Ministers, page 75. Under the demonstration of the, Holy, of the Holy Spirit's power, the Jews saw their guilt in refusing the evidence of God, that God had sent. But they would not yield their wicked resistance. Their obstinacy became more and more determined. What's obstinacy mean? Stubborn, stubborn yes. Stiff-necked, stubborn, yes. Their obstinacy became more and more determined and worked the ruin of their souls. What worked the ruin of their souls? Their obstinacy, yes. What kind of law is that? That's a design law. That's, that things are, that's natural law. Exactly. It was not that they could not yield, for they could, yet would not. It was not alone, notice this, it was not alone that they had been guilty and deserving of wrath, but that they armed themselves with the attributes of Satan and determinedly continued to be opposed to God. Notice that it wasn't that they had sinned and practiced deviation from God's design, but it was a persistent rebellion in their heart to oppose him. Every day, in their refusal to repent, they took up their rebellion afresh. They were preparing to reap that which they had sown. The wrath of God is not declared against men merely because of the sins which they have committed, but for choosing to continue in a state of resistance. And although they have light and knowledge, repeating their sins of the past. If they would submit, they would be pardoned, but they are determined not to yield. They defy God by their obstinacy. These souls have given themselves to Satan, and he controls them according to his will. How was it with the rebellious inhabitants of the antediluvian world? After rejecting the message of Noah, they plunged into sin with greater abandon than ever before and doubled the enormity of their corrupting practices. Those who refuse to reform by accepting Christ find nothing reformative in sin. It's like those who refuse to give up cigarettes but double down and smoke three packs a day find nothing healing in that behavior. 
That's what she's saying. There's nothing reformative in sin. Their minds are set to carry their spirit of revolt, and they are not and never will be forced to submission. The judgment which God brought upon the antediluvian world declared it incurable. What's the judgment? The diagnosis of incurability. They cannot be cured. That's the judgment. Yes? If God sees somebody as incurable, and God also has a heart that not one, um, that all may be saved and none will be lost, that's his heart. And he sees that that one person that has, that cannot be reached, is going to hinder somebody else that can be reached. Is it beyond God to put them to sleep? Uh, no, I think he, that's what I just described. I think he was doing the Old Testament in many places. He was doing that very thing. In the, Old the Testament New time. Testament also, I guess, is what I'm asking. Could he do that today? Sure. Is it, does he? I don't know. I haven't seen any inspired accounts of that happening. Can we read into it and, and assume that God might act in a certain place or time? He might. He might act to also keep people alive at places and times, too. Yeah, I don't put that be, uh, uh, past his ability. I don't restrict him in that way. I guess on this side, when God judged the last time, they really they make their choice not to be with God. I mean, the Holy Spirit could not work in them anymore, and God could not do anything but to destroy them. And at the same time, what we will we will have it. I mean, there will come the time when people will choose their direction of God or evil, and God and the Holy Spirit could, cannot do anything when somebody chooses to do wrong. We make our own choice. And that time they make their own choice and they decided to do evil. And the Bible says their heart was constant to evil. So they didn't have any good fruit in their heart. And the only one who could say was with Noah. So God in the plan of salvation has to do these things. And that was the judgment for them because no other way. And we are at the same time now. We are going that direction. People are chosen and doing wrong or doing right. And will come the time when everybody will choose, will do wrong, and wrong will be. And God has to come and judge it and destroy it. But he will not have to destroy us. No, he doesn't. The destruction, the wages of sin is death. Sin, when full grown, brings forth death. Um, from the, those who sow to the carnal nature, from that nature, reap destruction. Yeah, but what happened with flood? Yeah, what, ha- what happened with the flood was not punishment for sin. It was God uh, action, right? We just went through that entire scenario where God acted to keep open the avenue for Messiah. It was an act of love and redemption, not an act of punishment. No, no. God does for love, of course. And the wicked from the flood will, ra- will rise again to finish their lives. Yeah, what happened is, it's like cancer, you know. Sin is like cancer. If you uh, see somebody who has cancer, the suffering of the body is very bad. And will come the time, even the person who has the cancer will decide to die. Because the pain and the suffering is so much. And that for love, many times we decided the person to rest. And God's the same way. God is not punishing. God is, uh, is doing everything by law. I mean, whatever happened to us is by law. It's not by punishment. It's not even we don't respect that by fear, but by law. We, we don't understand because we live in the different direction of life. I mean, different mentality. What God has. Yeah, I understand. God doesn't do anything by punishment, it's by law, because the, the sin cannot be anymore. I mean, it's, dark, it's pain, but he it's does, destruction. But he does not destroy it. He does, do, this, he does not destroy the sinner. What happened with uh, Sodom and Gomorrah? 
See, this is a problem that people often get into when we think about the destruction of sin and sinners. When we think about destruction of sin and sinners, we're talking a future event that has not yet transpired. This is a destruction in which not only the body, but the individuality, the identity, the soul is eternally erased. In the Old Testament times, Sodom and Gomorrah, flood, 185,000 Assyrians, the platoons that came to arrest Elijah, Nadab and Abihu, uh, and so forth and so on. When God acted to put people in the grave, he only shut down their physical operations Their individuality is still in existence and will be resurrected again in the future. This is not punishment for sin happening. And when we look to the Old Testament to draw conclusions about the future, we make a gross error because they're not the same events. They're two separate and completely different events. Yeah, we we are chosen. We are in our free choice. Yeah, that's right. But come the time when God has to... it's, It's the presence of God anyway will destroy the sin. I mean... God and sin and dark and that light cannot be together. The light will destroy this, the dark anyway. I mean, the sin has to be destroyed because it cannot be in the presence of God. But at the same time, we are making our choice. Right now, we are making our choice, doing right or doing wrong. If we are doing wrong, we are auto-destroying anyway. If we see the life in this time, the enjoyment what we have, like human beings, drinking, smoking, party, or whatever is it, we are destroying our life. Why? Because we are not following the, 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 what our body needed. I mean, if you are smoking, you are putting toxic in your body. If you are drinking, you are pu- putting toxin in your body. If you are doing something what is not right, it's destroying your body. Sin is destruction. It's, it's dead. It's, it's correct. The sin is leading us to, to the dead. But God's presence will destroy anyway because he cannot be with the sin because sin is dead. I mean, God would... So maybe we should fin- go on to the next question I was about to ask, and is, what is the wrath of God? What is God's wrath? What is that? Maybe we should ask that question and look for a biblical answer for that. Ezekiel 24, 2, and then 19, 9 through 14. It says, this is uh, God speaking through the prophet. It says, the city of murderers is doomed. I myself will pile up the firewood, bring more wood, fan the flames, cook the meat, boil away the broth, burn up the bones. Now set the empty bronze pot on the coals and let it get red hot. You will not be pure again until you have felt the full force of my anger. I, the Lord, have spoken. The time for me to act has come. And then, what happened? See, many will read this. They say, God gets mad and he's going to really destroy. He said these words, but what happened afterwards? Who destroyed Israel? The Babylonians came. This is when the Babylonian captivity came. Yeah. And took them off into captivity. Judah, yeah. yeah. Um, but, but We think God is dangerous. Oh, he is, uh, you know. It's... So let's see how it operates. Let's see how it functions. Because God is love. Love cannot exist in an atmosphere without freedom. You can't go to your spouse and say, love me or I'll kill you. Love me, and if you don't love me, I'll pour gasoline and light you on fire. You will not get more love. It's impossible to get love with threats. So we have to understand God's action, the context of his character of love. And so let's, let's see what the Bible says. Deuteronomy 32. I have a question here. Yes, go ahead. If somebody I love really, right, but I know if I am close to that person, will harm the person. What should I do? I mean, if really the person loves me, I love okay. it. Okay, so let's give this scenario. You walk in, and a, a 19-year-old young person who's strung out on drugs, mm-hmm. psychotic, is threatening your wife and six-year-old child mm-hmm. with, with a knife. Mm-hmm. And you have a gun. And, he, and he's crazy and about to kill them. What do you do? Shoot him. Now, now, I've left one fact out. The 19-year-old is your firstborn son. Now, what do you do? He do what's in his best interest. Now, who do you have more concern about? 
You, your six-year-old is, is a trusting, loving six-year-old, is not in rebellion, loves to go to Sabbath school and create a role and all these things that they do. Your wife has got a saving relation with Jesus Christ. Who are you more concerned about, saving the physical life of your wife and child or saving the eternal life of the 19-year-old? And if you shoot the 19-year-old to protect the other two and his incomplete rebellion at this well, point... In that situation, even if you kill it, you are putting yourself... No, but you asked the question, so I put it back to you. It depends on which lens you're looking through. If you're looking through the human, imperial, imposed law context, then we must stop this from happening. You act like a Christian person, I mean... And if we look through the law of love and we understand that sin damages the sinner, it sears the conscience, warps the character, hardens the heart, and our love then is for the one who is... is, who is about to perpetrate the act of sin, we want to stop them, not simply to protect the innocent, which we do want to do, but to stop the worsening of the character destruction of the sinner. Yeah, but in the, in the situation what we are putting isn't, is my person, right? I'm not God, but in my, in my situation I have to act like, like my belief in my conscience, and my conscience is not, not to kill. So if I see somebody, only have to pray to God, because that is the way how I am. I mean, I, like, I am a, 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 a creator, creature, I am no God. I cannot make a choice. You asked me a question about walking in and somebody, and what do we do? I gave you an answer. Did it answer your question? No, that's the reason. Like, that person is harming. I will not do anything there. Only I have to pray to God. I mean, that's the same like I'm saying. If somebody is, I know I will harm that person, or that person will be pain from me, so it's better for me to be away. I mean, God cannot... That's and why don't you intervene to harden the person? What's your reason for not intervening? The conscience, we know we have not to kill. We don't need to... I mean, the commandment is not to kill it. If so what would happen if you did? Well, I will kill somebody. I, I, and, and then what happens if you do that? I will, my conscience will not help me. I will, be guilt, I will feel guilty. And what would God have to do to you? God... Well, it, it is... God... That you just... There is the Bible says to what Paul says, you have to act according to the conscience of the person, right? I, I don't know, the Bible says too, I don't know everything right. So I guess we don't know everything too. Yes, the Bible we... says we will understand when Christ comes. If we, we see First Corinthians 13, and the end of there says we will understand, uh, we are still like courting, we don't understand everything. If we try to understand everything and, and see this is like that, and get at uh, that point, we will not get it. God says, uh, well, we will not understand everything. But one thing is what I say. I mean, God, I, I agree with you, God is law. And he will not do anything by anger or, or, or frustration or things like that. God will act by law. Now, how he will act in everything, I cannot get it. But I am sure God loves everybody. Okay, comment back here. I would like to hear how you were going to talk about the mechanics of God's wrath. If you could delineate that. Okay. Yep. So Deuteronomy 32, 22 and 23. For a fire has been kindled by my wrath, one that burns to the realm of death below. It will devour the earth and its harvest and set fire, uh, set a fire the foundations of the mountains. I will heap calamities upon them and spend my arrows against them. If they were not, if they were wise and would understand this. Now, if you have wisdom and discernment, and understanding, then you're going to understand what those words mean. Here's what it goes. And discern what their end will be. How could one man chase a thousand or two put 10,000 to flight unless their rock had sold them, unless the Lord had given them up? This is Deuteronomy. This is uh, Paul, Romans chapter 1, verse 18. 
It says, the wrath of God is being revealed against all wickedness and godlessness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. And Paul's Greek there is active present. He's not saying God's wrath will one day in the future at the judgment be revealed. He's saying God's wrath is today, right now, being revealed against all the wickedness and godlessness of men. And then he goes on to tell you in verse 24, 26, and 28, three times he emphasizes what that action is in God's wrath. He says, therefore, God gave them up. Therefore, God gave them up. Therefore, God gave them up. And God's wrath is giving people up to reap the consequence of what unremedied sin does to the sinner. And what does unremedied sin do to the sinner? From Galatians, yes, Galatians chapter 5. Those who sow to the carnal nature from that nature reap destruction. Sin is deviation from God's design for life. It takes you out of harmony for how he's constructed life to operate. And if he lets go of you, the source of life, the only result is ruin and death. And thus, his wrath is simply letting people experience the total consequence of what they have chosen for themselves. So in the end, when the Bible says he's going to come and do the judgment and destroy the, the sin, you don't believe that God will destroy the sin? What is sin? Sin is death. I mean, Transgression. So how do you destroy death? What do you, what do you use to destroy death? Truth. Life. life is what you use to destroy death. So God will come and restore to life all those who trust him and his life-giving glory, his life-giving presence. In, uh, in Rebel, uh, Daniel chapter 7, the Ancient of Days took his throne and rivers of fire came out from before him. And 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands stand in this fire of his presence and are not harmed by it. Because the fire of love and truth are not harmful. What's harmful is unremedied sin. That's what's harmful. And thus, yes, he destroys death, absolutely. It says death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. What's that lake of fire? It is not combustion. It's not molecules. It is the fires of truth and love of God's absolute presence that Moses was, was radiating when Moses came down off the mountain. His face was showing this, yet he didn't have third-degree burns. His whiskers didn't burn off. But the Israelites, in their conscious sin, when they saw just this little reflected glow on Moses' face, it caused them suffering and agony, and they fell away, and they begged for him to put a veil over his face. But there was nothing harmful. You can see the contrast right there. Moses isn't harmed by it. But these people can't stand it. That's what will happen to the wicked in the end. They will come face to face with God's life-giving glory. And if you really want some more quotes on this, get the God in Your Church DVD set out there and watch the, uh, third lecture, the third lecture on there where I actually give quotes and references and walk you through the entire process so you can see how this happens. So what happened when the Moses, the rebellious say, people with, with Moses and they thought the, the earth opened and they died there, it, it was not cut. That's not the same as at the end of sin. Will those people who die there resurrect again? Will they or will they not come up in a resurrection? Either the resurrection of life or the resurrection of damnation, but they come up in one of the two resurrections, yes or no? Yes. I'm asking this gentleman. They will rise again. Then that, what happened to them was not punishment for sin, because the punishment for sin is eternal non-existence. They don't rise again after the second death. So when we look at those Old Testament experiences and try to project into the future judgment, we make an error because they're not the same experiences. Sunday's lesson. (laughs) (laughs) Philip the Evangelist. There are two Philips in the New Testament. Philip the Apostle, which is one of the twelve, and then Philip the Evangelist. Um, When Philip entered new areas, it says that he he would enter and he would begin evangelizing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Today... Do you think today you could go out like John the Baptist and preach on the street corner, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, and have success doing this? 
Why not? Why not? Why would that? It worked in John's day. Why won't it work in our day? Was the message taken? Do you think the message that we take today is the same message John had by the Christian church? Was the message taken of the early church about risen Jesus not only true, but was it fresh and revitalizing? And what did that message focus upon? It was the, Jesus was the center of that message. Victory over sin, offers of renewal heart, living free from fear and self-centeredness. Something happened to the message, though. The message changed. The message was corrupted by a system of imperialism. The gospel presented to the world most often today functions no different than human governments function. It's a system of, le- of sins being legal re- legally recorded, requiring legal payments, uh, a legal judicial process in which the, judicial, the heavenly judge will mete out appropriate punishments. And so we take a message that says functionally to people, what your, what your future is is no different than what you have now. There's nothing better, it's just more powerful, that's all. The character of God is no different than Nero. He just has more power. That's how he functions. This is why Christianity today has no power. Examples, God's laws imposed. God's a source of inflicted punishment. Sins are recorded. If you don't get them taken care of in a legal magnitude in some way in the courts of heaven, you've got to punish people for it. The church is, how about this one? Talk about why the gospel has no power today. How about this idea? The church is God's authority on earth and holds the keys to salvation. Thus one must follow the dictates from church headquarters or they won't be saved. Institutional ritual control, sacraments. If the institution doesn't baptize you, you can't go to heaven. If the institution doesn't do last rites, you can't go to heaven. If the institution doesn't hear your confession, you can't go to heaven. If you don't pray, pay your tithes to the institution, you can't go to heaven. If you don't accept all 28 fundamental beliefs of the institution, you can't be part of the church. Once the idea of imposed law came, it, it led to all these other distortions about God. Including things like indulgences, elite clergy separate from the laity, holy relics, penance, crusades, inquisitions, torture. Christianity is seen as a system of coercive and arbitrary power because they see God as a God who is so righteous he can't tolerate sin and offends him and he must lash out and destroy it wherever he finds it. Closing terms like God is sovereign. Yes. You, know, you listened to, you, know, you mentioned it a couple of weeks ago, Moody Radio. You, you, you listen to, in 15 minutes, you will hear, uh, God is sovereign. And then words take on different meanings than they actually should mean. Being saved, rather than mean, meaning being healed, renewed, reconciled in heart and mind to God, to love him and others, came to mean having your sinful deeds accounted for either in the church system of confession, penance, and indulgences, or in the heavenly accounting of the application of Christ's blood to your heavenly records. Becoming a Christian, rather than becoming a person who loves Jesus and the Father with all your heart and practices God's methods of love, thus revealing Christ's character of truth and freedom, came to mean belonging to an institutional religion and affirming their creed. Christianity, rather than being the unfolding of never-ending truth about God, his character, and methods, became a bastion of closed-minded, rigid thinkers who established mounds of tradition, doctrines, and beliefs designed to obstruct truth and keep people in fear of God and loyal to the institution.
Boy, we don't have time to go into what else I was going to go into, this question of miracles and, and where, where, where do miracles fall into evangelism today? I encourage you to get the notes. Um, miracles are extremely untrustworthy. They're not a good, good barometer for measuring truth. Truth is true because it's how reality functions. And God wants us to come back to understand him, his character, his design, how the reality of the way he's created the universe to run actually operates, what sin is, how it deviates from his design, and how, how it results in pain, suffering, and death. He wants us to understand reality. Miracles, however, can be faked. If you go home today and your dog starts talking to you, I promise you, you will be, you will be stunned, and it would be a miracle event. Remember, a donkey talked to somebody in the Old Testament, right? That was a miracle. But a, a serpent also talked in Eden. So we have animals talking. One time the animal's talking with, it, with a lie. Another time the animal's talking with the truth. Just because an animal talks doesn't mean it's true. You can't trust the miracle. You have to understand what's being said and trust the truth. Wendell. It's interesting that most of the times when you have miracles, it's for those who have little faith, not those who have great faith. Yes. So we, we have turned it around saying if you just have faith, you'll have healing, you'll have this or you'll have that. And yet most of the time, the miracles were those for those who had little faith, not for those who had Yes, faith. so the miracles were done through those with great faith for those with little faith. Correct. Yeah, that's how it usually worked when they were the miracles from God. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are God as Jesus revealed. If we've seen you, we've seen the Father. And you came and you sacrificed yourself. You gave all of your, your energies, powers, abilities to bless others, to uplift, to heal. That you didn't torture, punish, threaten. That you've won with truth and love. And it's the power of truth and love, Lord, that we want in our hearts. That we can go out of here representing you rightly. We ask that your light will shine upon us, you'll transform us, that we will partake of the victory that you've achieved, that your law will be written on our hearts and minds, and others will see you in us. We pray in your holy name. Amen.